I'm drawn to John chapter 21 today, so if you have a Bible, you might want to find it. It will come behind me in a little while. And somewhat encouraged because Quincy delved into John chapter 20 last week on Easter Sunday. So here, if nothing else, there's a little bit of continuity for you for two weeks anyway. And uh, you remember that, of course, John 20 announces the empty tomb. It goes on to explain how Jesus then appeared to different sets of people. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. And then he appeared to the 12. No, 11 first, 11 without Thomas. And then the 12 with Thomas, the one who, I don't think Jesus is alive. And then he saw him with his own eyes, my Lord and my God. And uh, that's how really John ties up his resurrection appearances, it would seem. Uh, You get this kind of concluding remark at the end of John 20, which says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it kind of feels like the end. But then we get another chapter, chapter 21, which starts afterwards. And I was just drawn to this chapter, so we're going to look at it this morning, that's all right. And we're going to read the whole chapter. Little tactic, if you haven't got much to say, read. No, no, it's not, honestly. Because it's a wonderful chapter, uh, often divided up into two accounts, but there's, there's such continuity. Uh, the, the paragraph heading that is inserted just before verse 15, Jesus reinstates Peter, comes in the middle of lunch, or rather breakfast. I, I really, it's not a good place, is it, to put a new heading in the middle of breakfast. So we need to see how breakfast unfolded. So that's what we're going to do. John chapter 21 says this, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, John who's writing this, and two other disciples were together, seven of them. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, But the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. It's a long way away, see, sure. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John's way of saying me, when I said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, John notes, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, 
bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him, The third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. John notes this was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? And this is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And I'd be here a lot longer telling you about them, wouldn't I? But never mind. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these wonderful accounts that have been recorded. Just beautiful stories, but narratives historic that happened. You interacted with these fishermen, with... This guy, Peter, Lord, we just thank you for them. And we ask by your Holy Spirit, illuminate it to us. Show us deep things. Gift us with insight and understanding. Help us to receive from you as they receive from you in that moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just wonderful, isn't it? Lovely, lovely account. Now, who here was ever the last person when they were picking sports teams at school. 
Yeah, you know the scenario. The teacher decides, I'll get two captains and you can choose who's on the team, one at a time. How many hands have we had? Keep them up there for a minute. This is, this is the hand of shame going up here. It's like, oh, my word, there's a lot of us. There's a lot. Of, why is there so many of us who are always the last to be picked? The maths don't add up. <laughs> but, I, I know it's, but we don't need many of those experiences, do we? for them to linger. They loom in our life. The, the, maybe there was one occasion when you were last. Maybe you were always the last one. Maybe you were near the end and it felt like you were the last. <laughs> but to me, uh, it's amazing how many of us were there. I once had to play inter-house rugby. Wasn't much of a sportsman, but you see, in our school, there was only one form per house. And I know a little bit about rugby, and they have quite a big team, more than football. So almost the whole class had to play in the inter-house rugby uh, competition. And my, I had a, a kind of little tactic of mine, I didn't know rugby very well, was to stay behind the action. Yeah? Be just a little bit late to the party. Yeah? A couple of metres behind the ball. Um, this tactic was working really well as I was the last of the lumbering kind of whatever they were locks to get to the breakdown. But I did found that actually standing behind the ball is not a good idea in rugby. Because there's a rule in rugby that I discovered in the middle of this match that you can only pass the ball backwards. And so there was I lumbering behind and suddenly the ball came into my hand and I, whoa, with a sense of panic, <laughs> popped it to my left. Thankfully, the, the, the pupil in our year who fably could run the 100 metres in 10 and a half seconds, was steaming up from full-back position, snipped the ball out of the air and ran and scored a try. I was heralded as half a hero in that moment, <laughs> but I don't know if I really deserved it. But the peak of my sporting prowess uh, went on. <laughs> it, um, three times I was picked for the school hockey team. Three times. To represent the school. Uh, until you find out, actually, the history teacher picked the team because the PE teacher was off sick for those three weeks. He was one of my favourite teachers because of history. Thankfully, every match was cancelled, so we never actually got to play, and I was never recalled into the side once the PE teacher returned. Why do I tell you that? Well, I think the overarching banner over those accounts in John 21 are these, is this, that you are still on the team. You are still on Jesus's team. I think that's the message I get from John chapter 21. I'm really speaking to those who are followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, that's fine. I trust you get some encouragement uh, and insight from what I'm sharing. Just to give a bit of context, we're meant to reference two other occasions as soon as we get to John 21. Don't worry if you haven't spotted them, but for the disciples, they would have got it. The first one is that they, they would have had a sense of deja vu, particularly Peter and some of the others. Because not so long ago, the same little gang, plus or minus a few, had been on that same lake catching fish all night but actually not catching fish all night because they didn't catch anything, on the same shores, and, and the same thing happened to them. And it was less than two years ago that Jesus told them to cast their net one more time in the morning, in the morning who catches fish in the morning. And they caught a miraculous 
catch. There was a sense of deja vu. We've been here before. You can read about it in Luke chapter 5, and I think that would have gone through their minds. Secondly, we're meant to see reflected here in a kind of mirror image, inverse mirror image, Jesus' conversation with Peter only a matter of days previously. Just before Jesus died on the cross, he predicted to Peter that he would deny him three times. Why does John emphasize three times Jesus said, do you love me, Peter? It's because he's trying to draw the parallel, the link here. On both occasions, it's pointed out that Peter was warmed by some burning coals. The first one where he was warming his hands in the courtyards. The second one here as the barbecued fish was being cooked. So we're meant to see those two links. The disciples would have got got that. Really, I'd say John chapter 21 is the great commission in a different form. When Jesus had risen, he appeared to the disciples... But each of the gospel accounts then goes on beyond Jesus' appearance to something else. And they share this in common. Jesus is alive. Well, what next? Well, they all give a what next. In Matthew chapter 28, the, the final words really from Jesus are these. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And surely I am with you always, just to paraphrase slightly. That was the explicit great commission, as it's been referred to since. Spoken, instruction. Mark ends his with something similar in chapter 16. Luke, you might say, well, Luke doesn't end there. He ends with resurrection appearances, full stop. Yeah, but Luke went on to write the book of Acts, which starts with the church waiting to receive power from the Holy Spirit so that they could be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then he explains how that happened and how they did it. So Luke's ending of his gospel is Acts. It's the same. It's the Great Commission. And John chapter 21 is is John's equivalent of that. There are two very strong metaphors in these accounts that I believe Jesus was making. I'm reluctant to allegorize Scripture unnecessarily, but I feel that these metaphors... Jesus was making to the disciples, the disciples would have understood, and John has made note of it so that we would get it also. They're the metaphors of fishing and shepherding. We're to be fishers of people. You see, the fishing miracle was symbolic of the mission to make disciples of Jesus. To be fishers of people. On that previous fishing trip, they would have recalled, with almost all the same circumstances... It ended with them following Jesus. And Jesus said to Simon Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so that fish for people is meant to be ringing in your ears as we come to John chapter 21, as it was for Peter and the others. They downed tools, they parked the boats, and they followed Jesus, and they went on an adventure with him. And now at the other end of that that their time with him, and he's saying again, follow me, I'm making you fishers of people. The second one is the shepherding of the flocks. Jesus tells Peter in this account to feed and take care of lambs and sheep. Now, what's going on here? 
was Jesus simply suggesting to Peter that he starts a new career? Because clearly, Peter, you're not very good at fishing. Maybe. Is that what he's saying? Peter, you're a fisherman. You've been out twice now, and I've watched you, and you've not caught a thing. And then me, the builder come carpenter bloke, I've told you to fish, and you've caught more from my instruction than on your own. Maybe you should try your hand at something else. Maybe livestock farming is your thing. I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. We don't read it like that. Of course we don't. Again, he's using the metaphor of sheep and lambs to indicate his people, followers of him. Christians, we might refer to them now. And Peter and the others, they got it. They got that link. They got that metaphor. It continues throughout the rest of our New Testament. It's where we get the words pastoral and shepherds of God's flock and pastor. These kind of words all spring from that understanding. Jesus is calling Peter to love him by making disciples. Having been caught, like fish in a net, to go on feeding them God's truth, God's word, and caring for them within the protection of the flock for their good, for their growth. It's not just go fish, it's go fish, go shepherd. Do both, fish and shepherd. You need to do both. Our commitment, you see, to Jesus is being on his team. And we express that by committing ourselves to his people, the flock, and playing our part in their health and in their growth and their discipleship. John uses quite different language for each of these three um, phrases that Jesus seemingly repeats, but he uses slightly different language in them. I think some of them is just, is just flourish, really. But the one distinction I think he is making that might be worth us pointing out is when he talks about feeding lambs, then taking care of sheep, and then feeding sheep. I think there's a subtlety there that's worth noting. I think it highlights... When it comes to this area of discipling one another, there are three categories, really, we need to bear in mind. There are the lambs, the little ones, literally the little lambs. We're to feed them with God's truth, with God's word, with God's spirit. Our children are new believers amongst us. No more noble a task under the heading of discipleship than caring for them, than gifting them with truth and God's word in a loving environment. Those of you who are taking time off this year for crisscross in July, fantastic. You will be rewarded. It will be rewarding. You're doing the stuff. Those of you who give an hour a month to go with our children out in the classrooms just to help them engage with things in a fun way. No better way, really, to be involved on a Sunday morning. Then take care of my sheep. You see, these lambs, they don't stay lambs for long. They get fluffier. They get less attractive, really. Lambs are cute, aren't they? But, they, you know, they, they get a bit, you know, muddy underneath and the rest of it. And, and it's incumbent on us still under this discipleship call to, to gather them, to help them, to care for them in community together. Then feeding the sheep, to go on sustaining this whole flock with all our variety of needs and, uh, and wants, we need to go on feeding each other with the truth. You know, we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that Jesus was inviting people onto his table tennis team. 
whether it's just two of you, or maybe the tennis duo that play against another doubles team. He's not inviting you and him to go off together. He's inviting you to join the team. This is more like a rugby team. There's, there's more players than you can count on the pitch. And he wants you to be part of that. And again, Peter got this. At Pentecost, when the 3,000 were there, and they heard Peter as he was feeding the lambs, giving them the truth. This is what's happened. The Spirit has come. Jesus is risen. And they came to faith in the risen Christ. We find quite quickly, Acts chapter 2, 42, 47, that they were in community together. They worshipped, they prayed, they gave, they broke bread and had wine. They shared together in big groups, in each other's homes. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just something that happened. It was in light of these instructions that Jesus was giving Peter and the others. Go and feed my sheep. Go and take care of my sheep. The message I want you to know is that you, yes, you, are still on Jesus' team. It's that personalize it. You see, the danger with John chapter 21 is we consider it only, oh, interesting history. Oh, nice for Peter, reinstated with Jesus. Good on him. But the fact is that Jesus, I think, through these accounts, is talking to all of his followers through all the time. The commission to go and make disciples is for you and for me, as it was for them. And I know that I can sometimes discount myself, maybe a little bit like Jim, oh, what can I say? What can I share? What if I offer prayer? I discount myself for being part of the team. Perhaps when reading this account about Peter, we can discount ourselves for not being Peter. Peter, often regarded as the man who guards the pearly gates, supposedly. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, or, or the human founder of the church upon which all authority in the church today needs to kind of connect itself. Really? No, no, we put Peter at a pedestal to our peril. Peter, we're meant to identify with Peter. <laughs> I'm like Peter. Again and again. Yes, Peter was instrumental in the early days of the church. Yes, he pioneered the gospel to the non-Jewish peoples. But let's not put him on a pedestal. Let's see ourselves in his shoes. You know, so often we can discount ourselves because we're so aware, more aware than anybody possibly, of our own mistakes, of our own mediocrity. But we've got to remember the seven that Jesus invited to breakfast included Thomas. High up on the list now, he was the last one to believe a couple of verses ago. It includes James and John. Not only the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them the Thunder of Thunder. Yeah, a bit of hotheads, I imagine. Nathaniel, we get a bit of information about Nathaniel all of a sudden. He comes from Cana in Galilee. We didn't know that before, and for some reason John's decided to tell us now. Maybe because they all came from Galilee, but we wouldn't have known unless we told that Nathaniel did too. But he too was one of the deserters. Where was he when Jesus was being led to crucifixion? Gone. Includes, well, Peter himself, the denier. Not only that, the liar denier. He, he said he wouldn't deny, and then he did. Is that worse than denying? I don't know. <laughs> the liar denier was there. Jesus wanted him back on the team. You're still on the team, Peter. Jesus picked them all. He picked these two other disciples. John doesn't even give us the names. I can discount myself. Oh, nobody even knows if I'm there. 
Are you one of those? Oh, yeah, it was, it was them, and he was there, and she was there, and there were two others. Oh, I can't remember. Two others. That's probably you and me. I feel like that. No, Jesus had those two others in mind. He wanted them there. You know, you probably don't have to be a cricket fan to know there's been a, a, an affair, a, a, you know, a, a horror in the world of cricket. Somebody has cheated at an international game. Steve Smith heralded as the greatest batsman living in the current times, captain of the Australian cricket team. He used a bit of sandpaper in his pocket. I don't know, something like that, I don't know. Um, and this is, kind of, this is horrifying. And he's been vilified and he's been humiliated and there's been tears on the telly and all sorts of things and he's been banned from the game for a whole year. Um, so I'm not disparaging cricket. I just don't understand it. Um, but that's what's happened. And uh, I just wondered, what, what, what if the head of Australian cricket, I imagine somebody in charge, would say, you know, we forgive Steve Smith for his ball-tampering shenanigans. But not only that, he doesn't have to serve his one-year ban. He can play for the team next week. You know, why did Peter jump into the water? Oh, well, Peter is always, you know, acting before he thought, speaking before he engaged his mind. We can often come with that critique of him, and maybe he was the most spontaneous of them at times, and maybe he did knee-jerk at times and then lived to regret it. But was it one of those moments? Sometimes we imagine um, Peter, in his desire to get to Jesus first, launched himself off, and in the kind of crawl kind of position, kind of steaming through the water, and then the penny was dropping, his memory was coming back. Oh, yes, I denied Jesus three times. Maybe being alone with Jesus isn't such a good idea. Oh, I'll maybe just kind of go a bit slower now. This is the breaststroke, in case you don't know. I only just learnt it. You've got to do your legs as well, haven't you? And all uh, oh, the boat's catching up. Oh, and maybe it kind of resorted to almost a stationary doggy paddle as, as the boat kind of, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get there about the same time now. We kind of imagine that kind of scenario. Look, if Peter got there last, I don't know. It may simply be he's a slow swimmer. I mean, he wasn't the kind of guy you'd put on your triathlon team. I mean, he, he was the last to get to the tomb. John out sprinted him. So he wasn't much of a runner. I don't know about his bicycle riding, he doesn't say, but he, maybe he was just a slow swimmer. But it, he also put his coat on. I know why, you know, but if you ever tried swimming with all your clothes on, it's not easy, especially in open water. Anyway, that's what we imagine of Peter. But perhaps Peter's reaction was one of delight because he now knew for certain that Jesus still wanted him on his team. He'd already seen the risen Jesus a couple of times at least. He, I imagine, was already reassured of Jesus' love for him and forgiveness towards him. He was, he, they'd been told to go to Galilee by the angel because Jesus wanted to appear to them there. And so they were going out of obedience. They weren't kind of just kicking around on a bit of waste ground wondering what to do with themselves. Well, the Fishing might have been a bit of that. But they'd gone to Galilee out of obedience. They expected to see Jesus. I don't think this was, oh, Jesus is alive. Oh, you know, surprise in that sense. But as soon as John pointed out it was Jesus, the deja vu moment was complete for Peter. The great hall of fish confirmed to him that Jesus still wanted 
Peter on his team. To catch people together. He once believed that before, from the first time, but now he wonders, have I disqualified myself because of my mistakes? The other thing I think we need to be cautious of is comparing ourselves with others. Jesus repeated this question in this way. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Why did he add that? More than these? Why not say, Peter, do you love me? But he brought a comparative element into his questioning. There was debate about what we wanted Peter to compare his love with. Was he comparing his love with the love the other disciples around the campfire had in Jesus? Or was, did Peter love Jesus more than he loved the other disciples, his mates, if you like? Or was Jesus saying, do you love me more than you love these fishing boats and these fishing nets that you seem to keep wanting to go in? Well, maybe Jesus intended a bit of ambiguity, but on balance, I think it was the first of those. Jesus was asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these others love me? Why would he do that? It's a bit awkward. They were sitting there. They were listening. At least, I think, in the early part of this conversation. But you see, Peter had recently announced publicly, after Jesus said, you will all fall away, he said, no, no, even if they all fall away, I'm not going to fall away. He brought a comparative element into his own assessment. And Jesus, maybe, was just reflecting that back. Now, Peter did the, possibly the wisest thing and dodged the comparative bit and just said simply, you know I love you. And it's not... I think that was wise. You see, Peter, I think, had a tendency, or at least a possibility, I'll meet him one day, so he'll check me on this, to compare himself with others. There was at least that possibility there. And John brings that out, even in this passage. They were both part of the core group of Jesus' 12, along with James. Where John didn't seem to put a foot wrong, Peter kept putting his foot in it. Where John outran Peter to the tomb, Peter had to go in first. Where John was the first one, that's Jesus. Peter was the first to launch himself off the side of the boat. Where John had leaned against Jesus at the Lord's Supper, Peter was the first to try and start a sword fight later that night. But now in private, Jesus informed Peter about the end of his life. Verse 18, 19. Peter, in hearing this, then said, what about him? Hoverer at the back there. He's always close by. John, what about him? I think maybe he betrayed that comparative possibility. Jesus, I think, just gently rebuked him, basically saying, you know what, Peter? Not really any of your business. He wasn't making any predictions about John. Just it's not any of your business. And I think the message is for us too. Don't compare. Don't compare yourself. There's a song about this, isn't there? You know it, don't you? It's to help you remember this point. Don't compare, don't compare, don't compare. So I know it's go compare. I've just changed it a little bit. So when you hear of that, you'll remember. Don't compare yourself to others. We're all on Jesus' disciple-making team. The what and the how for each of us is going to look different, like it did for Peter and John. Peter went on, uh, 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 and he was a man of action and helped establish churches, pioneer into the Gentile communities. But he did die an untimely death 
seemingly. He was crucified. And maybe even, as John points out now, Jesus' prediction about his end of life was talking about crucifixion. Some, your, your, your arms will be stretched out. Someone else will lead you where you don't want to go. John was going to have a different impact on the church. He was going to live to over 100, we believe. Mainly, his encouragement will come through his writings, through a time of severe persecution for the church. There's the guy to say, remember. There's the guy to say, keep going. Through it all, helping to protect the church through those years. And lastly, I think as a moment of faith, we need to remember that we're on the winning team. Jesus' instruction, again, like last time, led to this bountiful catch. They had been the experts. They had been trying as best they might. And it was Jesus who caught them, really, all those fish. And the amusing thing is, they got to the shore. There was Jesus. And he invited them to breakfast. And he already had some fish. He already had some fish. He didn't even need the 153 that they just counted out. Why 153? Well, some say you've got to kind of add 7 and 10 and multiply it by 3 and, you know, divide it by the number you first thought of and it kind of, you know, etc. Well, I think 153 means two things. Firstly, it means a lot. There are many more fish in the sea to change the interpretation of that phrase. There is a massive catch and a massive harvest for the church to bring in. That includes us. We're still on the team. Whatever our mistakes, whatever our disengagement, whatever our history and track record, we're on the team. And there's a catch to be had. Jesus has determined it. It will be huge. It will come from all nations. And we get to bring them in. Secondly, I think 153 means this, 153, not 152, not 154. You see, Jesus has chosen and appointed us to bear fruit, to use a different analogy he uses earlier in John chapter 15. He's, he's chosen us, you and me, as part of his team, to be fruitful fishers. And he will decide the size of the catch and how many are going to be in our net grace. So two things to leave you with, really. Firstly, is to believe, and secondly, to think, and I guess pray. I think there's some faith that we can extract from these passages that Jesus has still got a catch, and we're still on the team. And whether you've not considered yourself part of the team, whether you've discounted yourself in the past, whether you've made mistakes like Peter and the others, you're still on the team. You need to know that. God has a role for you. Don't compare yourself with others. It's unique. It's special. Your circumstances, your situations, your talents, your gifts are unique to you. The resources God has given you, the remit he has for you, the restrictions even he has for you are part of his plan to use you on his team along with the rest of us. It's going to look different. We're going to play different roles. It doesn't matter where we play, but we're on the team. Secondly, I think there's something for us to go away and consider. In terms of fishing and in terms of shepherding. Lord, how do you want me to grow on mission in catching men, catching people? Amongst my colleagues, in my workplace, how, how do I live out 
who you are. Like again, Jim did, just offering prayer to someone. Just so they know they can come to someone who trusts in a God when they need them. How can I display you in, in the values that I ooze in my workplace, amongst my family and friends, Lord, with the passions that I have? And secondly, Lord, how am I to help disciple others within the church? We've got a contribution to make to the feeding, to the caring of one another. It's part of it, right there. The last words of John. What is my role in feeding and caring for others around me? Amen. Thank you very much.